<laughs> they didn't teach us that in seminary. Turn on the mic. No, it's really good to, it's good to be here. Uh, Christine leaned over uh, just now and told me, you made it. And I did, yeah, I feel like I, I finally arrived. I've, I'm speaking for IBC, and uh, I am so excited to be here. Greetings to, all, uh, to you from all the people at Lighthouse San Diego, and just to get the elephant out of the room, I just want to apologize for the way Chloe's turning out, but uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. We love her, and we're so glad she's in San Diego with us, and we hope she never leaves. So... Uh, no, it really is a joy. I know that our ministries have had a, a kinship over the years and uh, in so, so many ways, kind of a relationship without the relationship. I don't know, is that weird? Uh, but really, really great uh, to, to be here. I have the utmost respect uh, for your pastor, and I'm glad that he's back from sabbatical. You get to have him back again. Uh, but uh, really just a joy uh, to be here together with you. And I hope to get to know uh, many of you. I know some of you have been coming up and introducing yourselves, and I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, I have this uh, wonderful spiritual gift of forgetting your name about 10 seconds after you tell me what it is. And so if you just keep trying, uh, eventually just by rote, it'll get stuck here. So uh, praise God for for that. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. And you can just forget the titles in your in your book, because uh, I called Naudible yesterday on the way up. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. I know the book says that the title is Good Roots, Good Fruits, right? Uh, so yeah, just forget that. We're going to start with the bad news, so you can change that to bad roots and bad fruits. And we'll look at good stuff uh, later tonight. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 19, and the title being Bad Roots, Bad Fruits. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, this is what God's Word says. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. That you, know, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Please pray with me as we open up God's Word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, even in the quiet of this moment, and ask that you would be our help. Uh, We confess, Lord, that we can't understand your truth apart from your Spirit. And so be gracious to us, Lord, and and teach us your ways. Not only that we might understand what it says, but that you would also help us to see how we ought to live it out, what difference it should make in our lives, God. And if there's any area of need of change in our lives, God, that you would be gracious to accomplish that change in us. Father, it's always a joy to open up your word together as a church family. And Father, at the same time, it's humbling Because this is your truth that you've revealed to us, that we might know it, and we want to know it rightly. And so be gracious to us, God. 
and help us this weekend that it would be profitable for our souls, that we would gain much, Lord, and have a wider view of who you are and even of ourselves before you. Be glorified through this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, years ago, I was uh, encountered uh, at church by uh, a man who had sat under the ministry of a very prominent evangelist. And as I go through this, you might kind of put the dots together or whatever, but there's a certain gospel presentation that they're kind of famous for presenting. It's not that I'm necessarily against it. I'm very appreciative of this ministry. In fact, we've done campus ministry together at San Diego State. But the presentation kind of goes like this. Like, have you ever lied? Well, then what does that make you? You know, that makes you a liar, doesn't it? Have you ever hated your brother? Well, the Bible tells you that uh, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you've murdered him in your heart. So that makes you a murderer. And if you've ever, you know, used the Lord's name in vain, then that makes you a blasphemer. You know, and so by your own admission, you're a lying, murdering blasphemer before the Lord. I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, that's kind of a clever way of kind of helping people understand their need for a Savior, because unless you understand the bad news, you're not really going to appreciate the good news, right? Like, it would be really weird if I had a life preserver right now, and I just, I don't know, threw it at Ashley, and she's grabbing it and just kind of holding it and thinking, what am I supposed to do with this thing? She wouldn't see the need for it. But if we were out in the middle of the ocean, and she was desperately trying to stay afloat, and I threw her a life preserver, wouldn't she cling to it with all of her strength? And so it certainly is important, before we get to the good news, to understand what the bad news is. But the presentation from Scripture seems to be just a little bit different than that evangelistic presentation. It isn't that we become liars because we lie. It isn't that our hating people in our hearts is what makes us murderers. It's not that we use the Lord's name in vain and that's all of a sudden what makes us blasphemers, as if the things that we do then turn us into the thing that we are. The presentation in Scripture consistently is actually the exact opposite. And it's become somewhat of a mantra for us down in San Diego as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians that we are what we are. Sorry, we do what we do because we are what we are. Say that with me. We do what we do. We do what we do because we are what we are. And, And this is the consistent presentation that we see in Scripture. We sin because we are sinners. It's not that the things that we do then all of a sudden come to define us. Our sin is more than just the things that we do. Our sin is a condition of our hearts. It it is really our nature and our identity. I think about passages like James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. that says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and don't have, and so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I think about Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 35. Jesus talking about an illustration that I fully appreciate, this idea of good fruit and bad fruit. We're going to look more about that tonight, but 
either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And the consistent testimony that we see in Scripture is one that runs counter to our culture today. We are in such a blame-shifting culture, aren't we? Nothing is your fault. Nothing is your fault. I mean, you will find media outlets that are sympathetic to school shooters and terrorists. Nothing is your fault. You are never to blame. It's like the last person on earth that you would attribute blame to is you. You're a victim of your circumstances. You're a victim of your upbringing, your environment. But what we see in Scripture is that our sinfulness is ultimately not a byproduct of our upbringing. It's not an, a byproduct of, our, of any kind of psychological condition or mental illness. Our sinfulness is not because of bad influences in our life or peer pressure. It's not because of the video games that you play or the music that you listen to. Certainly these things can have an influence on our lives. But our desire for these things exposes something that is deeper within. We have a radical problem. Not radical like radical, right? But radical meaning root. That's the Latin root, right? That's weird. The Latin root for root is rad. Like radish. It's, a, it's the root problem of what's going on within. We have a sin problem that's, that, that really helps us to understand who we are. And our passage that we're looking at this morning follows this pattern as well. What the Apostle Paul is not presenting for us, what God is not trying to teach us is that you know, we do some things from time to time that we should be ashamed of. We slipped up, slip up from time to time. I mean, if you've ever gone out and evangelized and talked to people, you're going to meet very few people that are going to come back and tell you that they're absolutely perfect. What they'll usually say is, well, yeah, of course I'm not perfect. Of course I've done certain things from, from time to time. But the presentation that we're going to be given this weekend is not, okay, so so we slip up. What we need to do is try harder. What we need to do is do better. That has become sort of a mantra of our society, isn't it? Do better. Do better. When the presentation from Scripture is, no, you're doing what you do because you are who you are. And what is desperately needed is not just behavioral modification. What's desperately needed is a transformation from within. If I'm going to have any hope of change, if I'm going to have any hope that I'm going to walk in the ways that I'm supposed to walk, then something needs to change inside of me. I don't just need coaching. I don't just need education. I need a heart transformation. And that's what we're going to be confronted with tonight, today and tonight. Our passage follows this pattern in verses 17 and 18. It walks us through the condition of the unbeliever's heart. Who you are. And then flowing out of that in verse 19, the behavior, the darkened and ignorant heart and what results from that. So if you're taking notes, that's really how we're going to follow this. Two characteristics of an unbeliever's life. Two characteristics of an unbeliever's 
life. And the first we see in verses 17 and 18, that the unbeliever's heart is darkened by sin. The unbeliever's heart is darkened by sin. We see this in verses 17 and 18, where it says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. The unbeliever's heart is darkened. Back when I was a student at UCSD, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, I remember taking a class about the influence of post-modernity on media. And it was just kind of an interesting class. Like long gone are the days of like Tolkien and Lewis, where you clearly have heroes and villains, right? You have like, you know, Aragorn and you got, you know, the, the, the fellowship. And, and then on the other side, you've got Sauron and the, and Mordor and you've got clear depictions of what is good and what is evil. And you see this conflict between what is good and what is evil. And even when you have a character like Gollum, who is struggling with where he belongs in this whole spectrum of things, there is still a clear understanding of what it would mean for him to walk in light versus darkness, right? And the professor was talking about how in our culture today, those lines are becoming so much more blurred. Now you have, I don't know, Captain America, Civil War. Who is the hero? No one knows. I'm still trying to figure this out. And you have debates. Are you Team Cap or are you Team Iron Man? And there's no real right answer, right? Because there isn't anyone presented that's truly just on the side of good that isn't marred by some kind of fault or error or something. And you can understand the viewpoints of both sides and and it starts to become all muddled. There really is no clear line. But in Scripture, the lines are sharp and distinct. There is righteousness and wickedness. There is God and Satan. There are believers and unbelievers. And there is no hazy, middle, I don't know where I kind of fit kind of thing. You are either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. You're either walking in the light or you remain in darkness. And in some ways, it is as simple as Jesus puts it in Mark chapter 9, verse 40, that he who is not against us is for us. Like I like to say in San Diego, you're either team Jesus or you're team loser. And that's it. Those are your choices. You're team Jesus or you're team loser. This entire passage is descriptive of the Gentiles' walk. And this idea of a person's walk, their manner of life, is a theme that runs throughout the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, listen to the words, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now in the sons, now working in the sons of disobedience. The way that we were once aligned, the way that we once walked, was consistent and in league with everything that is opposed to the Lord. 
Whether we're talking about the lusts of our own heart, or whether we're talking about the influence of the world, or whether we're even talking about satanic and demonic forces, that was the side that we were on. That was how we used to walk. But then in Ephesians chapter 4, in light of the gospel that has been presented to us in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it says there, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This verse serves as a hinge for the book, helping us understand this distinct line of what we once were to what we are now. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And this verse continues with a theme that we are going to see in Ephesians, that we are no longer what we once were. That in Christ we have been made new. Like in chapter 2, when it talks about how we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we are saved. That we were once spiritually dead, but now we are spiritually alive in Christ. And then immediately following that, starting in verse 11, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 talks about another distinction that once we were alienated from God and yet now in Christ we are brought near. And so in chapter 4 when it talks about this calling that comes with a walk, as you walk through the context of this chapter, in verses 1 through 6 it tells us that now that we are in Christ we ought to be unified. In verses 7 through 16, now that we are in Christ we ought to grow And now, starting in verse 17, our passage to the end of the chapter, not only are we to be unified and grow, but we are to be different. Because we're not the same as what we once were. In Christ, everything has been made new. We are not to walk as the Gentiles walk. It's an interesting word. And a major theme in the book of Ephesians is the Apostle Paul is helping us to understand that this one gospel has brought Jews and Gentiles together into one body. But we are not to walk as the Gentiles walk. And he's not just making a a statement about identity or race or ethnicity. Paul is specifically pointing to the heart of the Gentiles who do not have the law of God and don't care a thing about God's righteousness. It's similar to what he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, where it says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Throughout Scripture, it's not that, you know, if you're non-ethnically Jew, that all of a sudden that you're just this filthy thing and the Jews are necessarily clean. No, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But one of the distinctions is that the Gentiles don't have the law of God. They have no concern for the righteousness of God. They have no need to present themselves as self-righteous before God because they don't care about God at all. This is the heart of the nations who turn away from the Lord, who laugh at His sovereignty, who want nothing to do with Him. And so the condition that's presented to us in verses 17 and 18, that we are no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk, listen to the language, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for every practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. There's futility in their mind. That word futility literally just means nothingness, emptiness. You know, the language of this passage so much so reminds me of what's presented to us in Romans chapter 1. Flip back there to Romans chapter 1. And I'm sure in a church like this, this is a familiar passage to you. But Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, listen to the language there. Romans 1, 18 and following says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And here it is. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they they became futile, empty, nothing. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's a bleak presentation of the human condition, isn't it? That even though God has given us every reason to believe in Him, even though God has given us every evidence that we could possibly require, That there's no person that's going to stand before God with a justifiable excuse. God, you didn't give me enough proof. That they're all without excuse. They become futile in their speculations. Their hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. It's a bleak and desperate condition that is happening in our hearts. The problem is our heart, the center of our being, the mission control of everything that we say or do or think. I know we normally associate our hearts with our emotions, right? My heart wasn't in it, right? Like we associate our hearts with how we we feel. But it's interesting what's presented to us in Scripture that the heart is so much associated with the mind. I know that anatomically, it's not necessarily correct to think of it this way, but really spiritually speaking, our heart is here between our ears. Listen to the words of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I know we don't normally associate our heart with our thoughts, or, or, or Romans chapter 1, 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Our hearts and our minds are presented to us in Scripture as something somewhat synonymous. We think with our hearts and we feel with our hearts and it's kind of the center of our being and everything that we do. That's where the problem begins. 
Again, our sin is not just that we trip up from time to time. Our sin is not just the things that we do. It's not just that we have some ledger before the Lord and that one day that, that ledger with, with Christ and forgiveness is just cleared away. Because of the condition of our heart, even if he wiped it clean, we would continue to add to it because of who we are. We are desperately in need of something to happen within This is the language of this passage. Futility in mind, darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's within. And don't get that wrong. That is a willful ignorance. That's not an excuse. That's the ignorance of Romans chapter 1. I love the way R.C. Sproul described it. That that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the image of a, a spring, and we're holding it down, even though it's doing everything that it can to fight against us. Even though God has given us every reason to believe, we don't want to know it. We want to shove them in that closet and lock the door. That wherever God is, I want to be in the exact opposite direction, running as fast and as far as I possibly can. That is the condition of my heart. And this is what's so hard about this. Because you go out there and you'll talk to people and you'll try to explain this to them. And what they'll tell you is, I never hated God. I never cursed Jesus. I've never shook my fist into the heavens. I have no problem even with your faith. Hey, if that's good for you, then you do you, boo-boo, right? And I'll do me. Right? And that's kind of the mentality of the people of this world. And I try to help them understand, do you know what rebellion against the Lord looks like? Rebellion against the Lord doesn't necessarily look like you grab a knife and stab your neighbor. Rebellion against the Lord doesn't always look like just cheating on your taxes or cheating on your wife. Rebellion against the Lord sometimes looks like getting up in the morning and having breakfast. Rebellion against the Lord sometimes looks like getting in your car and going to work and and working a nine-to-five. Rebellion against the Lord sometimes looks like coming home and just watching television with your wife. Rebellion against the Lord sometimes looks like like these things. And you see the confused look on their face. Because none of those things seem morally wrong. But here's the point. That the Lord God created us for a purpose. We were made in the image of God and we were designed that we would reflect His glory to the ends of the earth, right? Remember the command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that we were to take the image of God, represent Him as His creatures and take His glory to the ends of the earth. And when man sinned against God, it was more than just eating an apple, and it wasn't an apple, but it was more than just eating that fruit in the garden. It was a distinct decision to say, God, I know what you created me for, but I would rather do something else. And it's living day to day without any acknowledgement that he's even there. That even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Even though he is the source of everything that we are even though he is the gracious giver of everything that we have, we live as though we have attained it. We live as though we have earned it. We live as though it's all ours. And insofar as we live our lives without him in the picture, that is us running as far 
and as, and as fast in the opposite direction of him as we could possibly go. Our hearts are bent against him. Our hearts are bent against his holiness and his righteousness and his purpose. We want nothing to do with him. And so we'll pay lip service and say things like, hey, if your religion is good for you, then, then that's, that's fine. And we'll make certain compromises. Don't all religions have their own kind of way to make it to, to God without really considering the truth? That our God is God and there is none other. And that he made us for a purpose and we rebelled against that purpose. And as such, sin entered into our hearts and affected who we are from the core of our being. So that everything that I do and everything that I say and everything that I think gets filtered through who I am as a sinner. Stems from the root of sin in my heart. When I should be walking in holiness because he's holy. When I should be walking in righteousness because he is righteous. When I should be walking in love because he is love. I mean, think about how crazy that is. The world would not disagree with that last statement. That we should walk in love. But the problem is they don't define love as God. They come up with their own definition of love. And this is how ridiculous it is. If God doesn't meet up to their standard of love, then he's unloving. It's all backwards. It's all rebellion. And it all stems from our sinful hearts. That's the presentation of this passage. That's the presentation of Romans chapter 1. That there is no good here. Not on my own. Not stemming from my own heart. I remember sharing the gospel with someone at UCSD one time and explaining to them about standing before God. And he was like trying to convince me that he'd be okay. Because one day when we stand before God, certainly there will be a giant scale. And everything good that we do gets put on one side of the scale. And everything bad that we do gets put on the other side of the scale. And I'm just convinced. I'm just convinced that the good is going to outweigh the bad in, in my life is what he was trying to present to me. And so let me just grant you that, because it's not going to be a scale. But let me just grant you that there's going to be a scale one day, and I'll just grant you that God is going to let you try and put every good thing that you've done on one side of the scale. You have nothing to bring. You have nothing to offer. Every minute of every day of your life has has been lived in rebellion against this God. And even the seemingly good things that you have done are are filthy rags to him. You cannot measure up to the righteousness of God. You cannot measure up to his righteous perfection. That is the condition of our human hearts. We are desperately depraved. I was reading about a situation of desperation. yesterday. some of you may have remembered this. Aaron Ralston, is that a name that's familiar to you? This is back in 2003. I forgot where it was, but he was hiking. And a a boulder came and crushed his arm. And he was stuck underneath that boulder for like the better part of a week, like five or six days with this boulder stuck on his arm. And all he had was a small pocket knife. 
but he was desperate to be freed of this boulder. And I don't want to get too gruesome, but it's going to get, there's no way of getting, not being gruesome. Sorry. He was forced to break his own arm. And he described in an interview that even though it was extremely painful, it also brought him great relief to break his arm because it was the feeling of him almost being free. And he describes taking that blunt pocket knife and cutting away at his flesh and freeing his arm. And the final thing was that major nerve that he felt felt like a guitar string. And he popped through that thing and the pain just shot up his arm. But he said he immediately felt pleasure because he knew he was free. He didn't know that his mom had also arranged for a search party. And as soon as he was free, I think like barely shortly afterwards, a helicopter found him. <laughs> I don't really have a point. I just wanted to share the story. No, <laughs> no I'm just th- thinking like, As desperate as that situation is, to say, I would be willing to do anything to be freed of this boulder. I would do the unthinkable to be free of this boulder. I think about our sin condition. And what we ought to be thinking is, God, I will do anything. I will do anything in my desperation to be freed of this condition. I used to joke around, right? We think about the immutability of God, his unchangeableness in his character, and that he's not going to change his mind. Like tomorrow, he's not going to say, hey, you know that salvation by grace alone thing? I changed my mind. Here's what it is. In order for you to be saved, you have to swim the English Channel. And I would be hopeless. I can tread water for about eight seconds, and then I die. Like I I usually joke around that if I was on a boat, like a cruise somewhere, and I fell overboard, I wouldn't even try. Like why die tired? Right? So just, just go down. <laughs> it is inevitable. <laughs> right? In, in my sin condition, I should be desperate to say, God, I will do anything. Even if it means training myself to swim the English Channel. Even if it means training myself to climb Everest. Like, I don't have that heart. I don't look at a mountain and say, that needs to be climbed. I, I look at a mountain and say, if you want to draw it, <laughs> that's great. Uh, In my sin condition, that's, that's really where my heart should be. Anything. You ask me anything to be freed of this burden. And I'll do it. And you know the reality of the gospel. And we're going to get there. That it's impossible. That there's nothing I can do about that condition. But the crazy thing, and the thing that's being described here in this passage... The crazy thing is that even though I find myself in this desperate condition, I don't want to do anything about it. I'm content in my sin. I enjoy it. And so I go back to it again and again and again like a dog to his own vomit. I prefer it. I don't want his righteousness. I don't want his holiness. I crave my own wickedness. That's how darkened my condition is. That's how foolish I am in my sin. That even though I'm desperate for salvation, 
I don't even know my own desperation. That's our condition. And as a result of that, verse 19, it affects my walk. And that's the second point, that the unbeliever's walk then is given to sin. The unbeliever's walk is given to sin. Look at it in verse 19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Our hearts are calloused. The term literally means to lose all feeling or sensitivity. We lack the discernment to distinguish between what is good and what is evil. We give ourselves over to our sin. Isn't that interesting? In Romans 1, we're presented with a slightly different perspective. Three times in Romans 1, in verses 24, 26, and 28, it tells us that God gave us over to our sin. God gave us over to the lusts of our flesh. God gave us over. And here it tells us that concurrently, so that we don't, in our blame-shifting nature, just point the finger at God and say, it's your fault. The Bible helps us to understand that in our wickedness, we give ourselves over. Because that's who we are. I, when I was a kid, I remember playing with my brother on a rainy day, and we would make uh, little boats out of leaves. Did you ever do that? And, and you put them in the water, and they kind of go down the thing until they go into the drain, and we just run along. <laughs> this is so much fun. <laughs> oh, this is the nature of things. And you, you take the leaf, and you put it into water, and you let it go. And it starts going downstream. Kids, if you don't understand this, this is just the way nature works. Okay? And I could sit there with all the willpower in my mind to will that leaf to go against the stream. And to say, you know what? I want you to go against the grain. Start going upstream. And is that leaf ever going to listen to me? No. Never. If I want that leaf to go against the stream, what do I need to do? I need to stoop down, grab the leaf, and drag it the other way. If I want that leaf to head to that gutter, then what do I need to do? I just need to let it go. And this is our nature. We are given to our sin. We are bent towards our sin. We don't need God's assistance to push us along and to say, go on and sin, little ones. We are calloused in our sin, unfeeling, insensitive to our sin. And all that is necessary is for God to say, you want your sin? You love your sin? Fine. And he gives us over. But understand that's a condition of our hearts. We've already given ourselves over to it. We've given ourselves over to our sin. And so it's true as much for the unbeliever as it is for the believer. That we do what we do because we are who we are. We do what we do because we are who we are. And so given themselves over to sensuality, to every impurity, with greediness. The unbelieving heart craves licentiousness. When it comes even to sexual immorality, 
There's an anything goes kind of mentality. And we see that in our culture. I had a, a high school friend. I'm sorry if this is too crude. Uh, a high school friend who became an actress. I guess somewhat successive, uh, successful. Uh, what was that uh, the, the movie about the plane that went down in the Hudson? Uh, she was in that. Anyway, uh, uh, she's been on a lot of like uh, uh, shows on, uh, what's the channel, hun? Hallmark. She's been in a lot of Hallmark, Hallmark movies, Christmas time, uh, that kind of thing. And I remember she was being interviewed one time about nudity in film. And how she was appalled at how much female nudity there is in film. And I'm thinking, yes, amen. This is someone who was a professing believer in high school. And so they asked her, what should be done about this? And I'm ready for her to say we should get rid of all nudity in film. Amen? Right? And no, she goes, no, it's so appalling that it's only women. What we need is male nudity. More male nudity. And I was like, are you kidding me? But that is our culture. That is the anything goes kind of mentality. You're starting to see it in other cultures and you're starting to start, it's starting to creep in now. There was an advertisement in Argentina that was posted by some of our friends on social media where it showed different relationships. A man with a man, a woman with a woman, a man with a, a, a woman, and then finally an adult with a child. And all were presented as equally acceptable because love is love. This is the culture that we find ourselves in, demonstrated in the promiscuity, in the adultery, in the fornication, in the homosexuality, lesbianism, gender confusion, and so on and so forth. And these sins are particularly highlighted in passages like this because they go back to the beginning. When God said in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That God created us in his image, male and female, he created them. And so that when we fall into sins like homosexuality and transgenderism, and we see this in our culture, this is society's way of saying, God, even from the very beginning, we hate you. We want to be day one. We want to be day one disobedient to you. And go against even the very foundations of how you have designed us. We're desperate. And anyone who is in this condition should see it. But our hearts are darkened. Have you ever been in a dark room? I took a social psych class at UCSD. I did it for fun. I wasn't a psych major. It was because all my psych major friends were telling me how hard their major was. And I kept thinking to myself, how hard could it be? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, what's one of the hard classes that you took? And they said social psych. So I took upper division social psych just for kicks. And I got an A. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, but I did. Uh, so... One of the experiments that the professor was talking about, it was, it was actually a fascinating class of just about the social things that we do, things that we're not really aware of, right? And, and things that aren't even presented to us in media. Like, do you ever realize on a phone call on TV or movies, they never say goodbye? 
It's kind of an interesting thing. But for us, on the other side of it, we typically always say goodbye, but we don't always just say goodbye. There's always something that we say right before we say goodbye. What is it? Okay. 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 Bye. Right? (laughs) In fact, we've grown so accustomed to this that if you end a phone call with just saying bye, you sound rude. Right? You have to say okay. (laughs) Uh, and the professor was saying even little social things like, like going to the beach, right? Next time you go to the beach, take your blanket and lay it down next to somebody and lie down. I mean, it's not their space. It's legal for you to do that. It's just weird. Or when we get into an elevator, we all turn around and look at the numbers, right? Uh, and he was just talking about the social pressures that are on us and the, how we give in to those social pressures. And one example that he gave was they, they put like 12 people in a room. And one person was the one that was being experimented on. He didn't know that the other 11 were part of the experiment. And they shut off the lights. There were no doors, no windows. It was absolutely pitch black. You could wave your hand in front of your face, and you couldn't see your hand. And then they put a red dot on the wall. And the question that was posed to the room was, how far right and left is that dot moving on the wall? Now, the thing was, it wasn't moving at all. But person one said, I think it's moving like six inches. And then person two started saying, I think it's more like three feet, right? And they just down the line started talking about how much it moved. And even though person number 12, who was the experiment, was convinced that it wasn't moving because of the response of everyone else said, I think it's moving like six feet, <laughs> right? And the whole point is that we give into pressure. I don't care about the experience. I just care about the dark room. Imagine being in a pitch black room where you put a hand in front of your face and you can't even see your fingers moving. We talk about sometimes how we have a game, my wife and I, that the last person in bed has to shut off the lights. And maybe you play this game as well. And maybe your room looks like ours. And so before you turn off the light, you have to survey the room and see where all the obstacles are so that you don't trip and die on your way to bed. Or stub your toe on the corner of the, of the bed or whatever and cause yourself immense pain. And so you're studying the room and, and mapping it out. And then you shut off the light and just very carefully, you know. But you know that if you were just to wait there for 20 or 30 seconds, your eyes would adjust. Because even what very faint light there is in the room dispels the darkness. Folks, when it comes to our spiritual condition, we are not mostly dark. When it comes to our spiritual condition, you could wave your fingers in front of your face and you wouldn't know that it's there. God could dangle salvation right in front of you and you would not know to reach out and grab it. We need desperately to be cured of our condition. I need to be made new. I need to be made whole. And I can't do that on my own. Someone needs to come and do that for me. And as hard as, as, as hard and as long as I could try to try and earn myself to God, I can't accomplish it. And maybe you've heard this, or maybe you've even thought this for yourself, that this whole Christianity thing sounds good. There's just a few things I need to get fixed in my life, and then I'll, I'll come back. You can't fix it. In fact, even in trying, you'll just make the situation worse. You need a Savior And that's why Jesus came, because of our desperate condition. We couldn't do anything about our depravity. We couldn't do anything about our blindness. We couldn't do anything about our calloused and hardened hearts. We needed a God who was able to break through that hardness and save us. I needed rescuing. 
If I fall overboard, okay, I, I'll try. I'll try, right? But you know what is not going to save me is if I take my other hand and grab my first hand and try and pull myself out of the water. That's not what's going to save me. I need someone to reach down and grab me. And only Christ can do that. That's why he came. I know I'm talking to IBC. I have so much love and respect for your ministry. But maybe your testimony is something like mine. Where you grew up going to church and grew up in a Christian home. All the while thinking that you were just fine. But maybe there's some nagging feeling inside that everyone around you has something that you don't have. And maybe, just maybe, God will use this weekend to open your eyes to that. And to help you see your desperate condition. That going to church every week for weeks on end is not what's going to save you. And reading your Bible every day is not what's going to save you. And giving money to the basket is not what's going to save you. And serving in ministry is not what's going to save you. That what you need is not just a Christian heritage. What you need is a Savior. Lord Jesus, be merciful to me. That's the crazy thing about passages like this. As I read through it, I don't just think about the wickedness of the Gentiles. I think about my own wickedness. I think about that 1 Corinthians 6, such for some of you kind of wickedness. And God, if this was my testimony, and if I was this foolish, and if I was this darkened, and if I was this hardened, why? Why would you save me? I know the things that I've done. I don't know anything that you've done. I know the things that I've done. I know the things that I still do to offend his righteousness. And it's God, you have given, I've given you every reason to abandon me. I've given you every reason to give up on me. I've given you every reason to change your mind about me. But you won't. Not because of some inherent goodness within me. Not because of some shining quality within me. Not because of some intrinsic worth. You won't let go because you're faithful. You won't let go because you've promised. And even in those days where I wake up and I'm just struggling, and yes, as a pastor, you still have days like that. Man, there are days where I tell people, give me a microphone and connect it to every speaker on the planet, and I'll save everybody. I don't know about you, but there are days I wake up and I don't even feel Christian. I'll pray and it feels like the words just hit the ceiling and come back and smack me in the face. And I, and seriously, this thing, right, the front cover of my Bible sometimes is the heaviest object on the planet. And on those days I pray, God, even though the feeling is not there, even though I am struggling, I'm trusting you. You made a promise that you're not going to let me go. You made a promise that I could be forgiven of my sin if I trust in your son. You made a promise that I'm yours. And once I'm yours, I'm always yours. So I'm trusting you. 
Not in some intrinsic goodness. Not in some, I'm going to carry myself to eternity. None of that. I'm trusting you. Because much as I fail, you never fail. And folks, if you don't have that hope, you need it. I'm talking to the kids. The faith of your parents is not going to save you. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't save you. I learned that the hard way. Is he your Lord and Savior? Because I'll tell you, and you may not believe me yet, there is nothing better than living for Christ. Is there? There's nothing better. That's how I like to evangelize. It's not just that you need to know Jesus. It's that you get to know him. You get to know him. There is a God who created all that is with a word. And by the way, he didn't even have to use words. But he did. And when he said it, creation was compelled to obey. This God who has infinite power, infinite wisdom. I know him. And he knows me. And I know what he's thinking. And I know what he wants for you. Because he's revealed it to us. I get to know him. And I can't tell you how incredibly good he is. How incredibly awesome he is. And that's the thing. I don't know him because I'm equally good. I don't know him because I measured up. I know him that he, because even though I slapped him in the face and cursed him to his face and shook my fist in his face, he wrapped his arms of love around me. And he held me. And he said, you're mine now. And I'm never letting you go. Would you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because there is salvation in no one else. And yeah, I know life is hard and I know that circumstances are hard, but God is good. Do you trust in this God? Because if you don't, then this passage describes your condition. Foolish, darkened, hardened, callous. But if you cry out to God for salvation, if you cry out, God, be merciful to me and save me and forgive me, show me your goodness, show me your grace. What I love about this is it presents a God who is not only willing, but eager to save you. Eager to forgive if you would trust him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. Lord, it is a humbling thing to consider that we are what we are and so we do what we do. That what we need, our most radical need, is transformation. Father, we need a new heart. And only you can grant it. We need a new life. And only you can bestow it. And so we pray, Father, that you'd be gracious to us. If there's anyone here in this room that doesn't know you, that you would help them to see their desperate condition. Help them to humble themselves and to bow their knee to you, submit their lives to you, God, and trust in you for forgiveness and for salvation, that they might have the hope 
that we have, that they might have the joy that we have, that they would get to know you and live for you just as we do. And for those of us who are your children, I pray as we walk through this weekend to consider how we ought to live now that we're yours, that you would give us wisdom to that end for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.